Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Yes, that's right. I've been away for a little while, but uh, guess what's happened? Um, the nurses' strike has been called off because suddenly somebody in the nurses' uh, organisation, the RCN, has seen sense. But not in the doctor's place. No, no, no. They've decided uh, the 5% is not good enough for them. Uh, they want an awful lot more, closer to 35%, even though most of them are on more than six-figure salaries. So they're going to bring the NHS to its knees once again in July for about a week because they hate patients. They hate the people of this country and they hate the job that they do. But nevertheless, that they continue to take their six-figure salaries, that they continue to do their private work because they can make even more money doing that, and that they continue to stuff their gold-plated pensions with all of our money. Because let's face it, ladies and gentlemen, the NHS is run on our money. Doctors are going on strike, okay? What that means is people will die. People will miss operations. People will miss procedures. People will miss the opportunity to make themselves well. All because people who make £120,000 a year want another 35% because apparently they need to buy another Jaguar. Isn't that nice? Welcome to Britain. I came back from holiday yesterday, or very early hours of this morning, uh, to find there's a bit of a problem with the water business, right? Not only is Southeast Water and Southern Water operating a hosepipe ban, uh, but the head of Thames Water, after doubling her salary uh, in a couple of years, has finally resigned because apparently Thames Water is in so much debt, they're literally drowning in it. See what I did there? I don't know what they're going to do, but apparently water is in crisis in this country, despite the fact that we live on an island surrounded by water. Uh, We live in an island where rain falls from the sky, uh, the biggest rainfall in March since about 40 years ago. We can't keep any of it, though, uh, because we haven't got any reservoirs and all the pipes leak. It's a bit like having a house with no walls, isn't it? Yeah, it's great. It's a lovely house. Um, It's a bit damp during the winter and cold because we haven't got any walls. Unbelievable. Meanwhile, Matt Hancock's been up uh, at the COVID inquiry telling everyone how sorry he is uh, that he was found out uh, to not know what he was doing. Brilliant. Well done, Matt. Uh, But he doesn't mind uh, because as long as we do the next time a lockdown faster, harder and quicker and even worse for everybody, then everyone should really understand that it wasn't his fault in the first place. He was told that we were brilliant and he believed them. It was the World Health Organization that told him. Why wouldn't he believe them? Because everybody knows they talk absolute sense. I don't know where else to go, really, because uh, we've got Tim Montgomery, former number 10 advisor. There's a bloke running for mayor of London uh, who's been accused of groping a woman's breasts. She's now made a formal complaint to number 10, which apparently proved harder to be uh, than it should have been. Um, uh, He's carrying on saying it's nothing to do with him. He didn't do it. I predict he'll be out of the race by about uh, Friday. 
we shall see. 0344 499 1000. We've got Prime Minister's questions coming up, of course, as well. Uh, we've got all manner of great things. We've got Annabelle Denham coming on, Molly Kingsley's coming on, Alex Phillips is coming on to talk about migrants. Uh, we've got Kevin Spacey's trial starting. Um, Prime Minister's questions, did I mention that? Who knows what could happen? Sakia Starmer. This is Talk TV. I'm Mike Graham. Welcome to the fight. Let's get it on. Oh, good to be back. Oh, by the way, um, so I take a couple of days off and somebody tries to overthrow Vladimir Putin. The Wagner Group, uh, apparently they were persuaded not to, supposedly, depending on who you believe, uh, because Putin threatened to kill some members of his family. Which sounds entirely in keeping with uh, what might have happened. But let's say a very good morning to Tim Montgomery, former number 10 advisor, conservative stalwarts. I want to know what he thinks of not only what the Tories are up to, um, but what the Labour Party are up to as well. Tim, a very good morning to you. Good morning. Well, the lesson, Mike, is given what you just said, we're not going to let you go on any mini breaks anymore. <laughs> Disasters I know. to strike at every turn when you're away. We need you in that hot well, seat do you to know, fight all these things, prevent them from happening. Do you know, there was a time when I was in Fleet Street, every time I went on holiday, some senior editor got fired. You know, uh, Andrew <laughs> Neil was fired when I was uh, on holiday. Kelvin McKenzie was fired when I was on holiday. And Sir Nick Lloyd was fired when I was on holiday. Anyway, enough of that. But what is going on um, back here? I'd like to set off, I think, at the beginning of this conversation, the water crisis, which we're now facing. Thames Water has some, apparently got itself into so much debt that it won't be able to survive without some government help. How have we let the water business get so toxic? I think you have to see this, Mike, in the context of Britain really underinvesting in everything, whether it's our railways, whether it's our nuclear uh, electricity generation capacity. We're just not very good as a country, and I think actually this applies to a lot of Western democracies, about spending money on long-term infrastructure. Rather, you know, you've just been talking about the pay demands of uh, doctors. It's easier if you're an elected politician or a business which has, you know, quarterly results constantly being posted on the stock exchange, mm. which investors look at. It's easier to pay dividends or it's easier to pay the pay demands of workers rather than improve our sewerage or build those nuclear power stations or build those you know, motorways. And something has to change. I don't know what it is, but if we're going to compete with China, if we're going to compete with you know, the rising authoritarian regimes, um, we have to change the way we use our money. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. But the trouble is, um, it seems as though we've we've only like woken up from some long, deep sleep and worked out that we haven't been doing anything for a very long time. And I and I don't blame it all on the Tory party for the last 13 years. I blame it also on uh, the kind of fascination that the Labour Party had under Blair and Brown for the financial sector and financial services, which seemed to be the only thing uh, that they believed in. And they pumped it up to such an extent uh, that it exploded in sort of 2008. But in the end, you know, we have neglected our utilities. We have neglected our roads, our rail systems, as everything you say. You know, we don't seem to have maintained them. And in a way, that is the fault of, I don't know, quangos, governments, everybody, isn't it? Well, look, the, the privatisation system, the idea was both you and I, Mike, are old enough to remember this. Some of our viewers might not be. Some of our viewers might not be. But, you know, British Railways 
didn't really build any railways when it was under nationalisation. Mm. In fact, you know, the beaching reforms meant a lot of railways were closed. And you look and look at that again and again with most of the nationalised industries. They didn't invest because of what I've just said. Government is under enormous electoral pressure all the time. Politicians don't think, oh, I'll put this money in in 10 years time, we'll have that new railway or whatever. And they just invest in short term things. The idea of privatising these companies was to ensure that they were run efficiently and they could borrow long term on the stock exchange for things like investment. I think we probably need to keep these companies privatised, therefore, because I don't think nationalisation is the answer. But somehow the regulatory regime needs to change mm. so that they're encouraged to take more of the long term decisions um, that we need for ensure we have clean water and efficient railways and, and the rest of it. Well, it doesn't seem to be asking too much for a reasonably successful world economy to be able to have services that you can rely on. But more and more people tell me uh, that they feel they live in a, a sort of country that's almost on the, on the decline because nothing works. You can't really get from point A to point B. I mean, even yesterday I came off the plane at Gatwick and the travelator, whatever you want to call that moving escalator thing, had been completely mm. closed off. And it was sort of like, a, for me, a welcome back to Britain sign because it was just, it was all black and yellow kind of, you know, curtains, nobody working to fix it, just saying it was under construction. And you're thinking, well, why? Why does it not work? Why is it so useless? You know, I went to Cyprus. I know it's a much smaller country with a lot fewer people in it, but everything sort of worked quite well. You know, and you didn't get that sense that we get here where everything is basically kind of broken. My suspicion, Mike, is that Travelator wasn't broken, or properly broken. I suspect there was a little issue with it. Mm. And they were very wide because of the lit litigious culture we work in today. Yeah. But if even if there were a 0.1% chance that something had gone wrong, someone had fallen on the Travelator when it would, had stopped or something, <laughs> they would be sued. And that, that's a lot of the trouble with why things don't happen in Britain or why everything is so expensive compared to uh, other countries. Yeah. Is there's so much health and safety, there's so much um, equalities, there's so much legislation that doesn't really have to do with anything actually working physically or mechanically. It's we've become a culture which gold plates everything that happens. And that travelator probably could have been turned on very easily but some lawyer or some very cautious manager, manager had said, no, all can't, I can't afford to do yes. this. And who's inconvenience is always you and other passengers. Exactly. Not, 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 not the supervisors, because they're never held accountable for that decision. Right. And again, this, it, much of it, and I know this from watching the regulator, certainly in the water industry and in the uh, electricity industry and in the power and energy sector, you know, we've got water bills. The story today, water bills will need to rise 40% to meet the cost of pollution targets. And a second story about an £84 green carbon tax uh, needs to be slashed in order to help households. We also heard over the last few days that Rishi Sunak's going to put back uh, the £170 um, green levy, which Liz Truss had removed, you know, costing people even more money. Well, one of the things that has happened while they've been away, um, Mike, is Rishi Sunak's ratings have really plummeted. Yeah. You know, he's now at sort of minus 31% in the opinion polls. Look, I think if Jesus Christ returned to earth this very day and somehow, I don't know the theology of this, but became Tory leader, I think the Tories would still win to lose um, the next general election. I don't think we can blame Rishi Sunak for all of the Tories' ills. He inherited a lot of them. You mentioned Liz Truss. But 
unfortunately, he isn't speaking to the country at all. You know, I follow politics incredibly closely. Mm. I don't know what his vision is for Britain. I don't know what his answer would be to, for example, the water uh, crisis. I, he, he, he gives little announcements, but he doesn't tell us what his big plan is. Mm. And if the Tories are going to at least get close to the next election so that they have a number of MPs that keeps them competitive in British politics, he has to really improve his game and he needs to improve his game quite quickly. Yeah, I mean, he can't just keep telling us how well he's doing and how smooth the economy is and how well yeah. he's running everything because it's clearly not happening. And he can't keep telling us he's stopping the boats either, by the way, because that's not happening either. But, you know, it is extraordinary, isn't it, that um, uh, Richie Sunak has become so unpopular not least because he just hasn't really done anything. And the Tory party are leading a, a very high tax regime now. People are struggling to, to make ends meet. And yet he's not helping them. He's not helping anybody. No. And he was he can't just say, well, I was only became prime minister six months ago. You know, he was Chancellor of the Exchequer for most of this parliament. And he had a picture of Nigel Lawson on his wall. Nigel Lawson was one of my favourite chancellors during the Thatcher years. Every budget he had, he made a big reform, whether it was cutting taxes in some way, simplifying taxes. Rishi Sunak didn't use any of his budgets um, for, for big reforms. And so he, he can't really distance himself from the government's problems. You know, he's been implicated in, in them, you know, throughout this um, mm. period since 2019. Yeah, and, and one fast point there on the on the Sermon on the Mount and the reappearance of Jesus Christ. He couldn't do the miracle of the loaves and the fishes because grain's too expensive and we've given all the fish away to the French. But that's just a passing <laughs> thought. Um, we'll come back to you, Tim. Stay where you are. An investigation has been launched. Here's another one, a great thing that happened while I was away, into BT after a disruption to 999 emergency call services. Ofcom has today opened an investigation after the UK-wide issue on the 25th of June. Uh, certainly people couldn't call 999. We'll get into that a little bit further along the track. But we're talking to Tim Montgomery. Coming back, we're going to talk about the situation regarding Keir Starmer. He said he wants to make families the centre point of his policy. Also, we'll talk about this guy who's running for Mayor of London. Not many people have heard of him until yesterday, and suddenly now he's at the centre of a groping scandal. This is Talk TV. The home of common sense. Talk radio and talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Getting some great tweets and uh, messages coming in about the water and the problems with water. Um, Sandy says this, having lived on the island of Tenerife, I can tell you they have no water shortages despite it being warmer and drier than the UK. Underinvestment here, yep, on everything except the contents of the dinghies. Uh, and here's one from um, uh, Kingsley. He says, Mike, the water system in Spain works well. It works by the local government's retaining ownership of the system, but bidding companies are given a 10-year franchise to run it with strict targets. If they fail... You don't have to buy it back. The franchise just isn't renewed. Interesting. Uh, we'll keep up that conversation about water because Thames Water is obviously going to be a big story in the next couple of days. And we've told you about an investigation being launched into BT after disruption to 999 emergency services calls. But let's have a look uh, just before we go back to Tim Montgomery, former number 10 advisor, and an interview, a great interview last night Kate McCann did uh, with a, a hopeful mayoral candidate who is basically uh, wishing to become the next Sadiq Khan. His name is Daniel Korski. Uh, he's a former number 10 advisor. In fact, he led the Remain campaign inside David Cameron's government. Uh, so he hasn't exactly got a great track record, you'd have to say. Um, but here he is talking about his relationship with his wife. It's a difficult question, but it's an important one, I think, in the context of what we're talking about. And no doubt this will have an impact on your wider life and your family. 
Have you always been faithful to your wife? Look, I mean, I have um, a fantastic marriage to my wife, um, and I'm really, you know, excited that we've built a fantastic family together. I don't think it would be appropriate to talk about anything else. Um, I have a loving relationship with my wife. Um, we've been together for 22 years, I think it is now. We met originally in Bosnia after the war. Um, and, you know, I'm thrilled to, to build a life and a family with her. Well, um, I'm not sure what you make of an answer like that to a question like that. Tim Montgomery, I don't know whether you knew him in number 10 or whether your paths didn't quite cross. I think he left with Cameron, didn't he? Yeah, I, I did know Daniel. And it's always struck me as a very thoughtful and interesting person. Very clued up on technology and heard some of the interviews he's done as part of his mayoral campaign. And I've been very impressed with him. I think Tory HQ are wrong to immediately say they won't investigate the allegations made against him. Yeah. Um, Equally, though, I don't think he should have to talk about every aspect of his marriage. If you know, there may well have been problems in his marriage. I, I don't know, but I don't think we require people, you know, wanting to stand in public life to have to reveal everything about their private lives. If we go down that route, no one um, will will want to stand for public life because of you know journalistic um, interference in every aspect of their life. I don't know the truth of the allegations made about uh, Daniel Korski. I suspect what will happen if the allegations of groping are true, that other women will come forward following yesterday's story in the Times and make other allegations against Daniel Korski. Normally what happens, if someone does grope a woman once, it won't be the only time they've done so. They will yes. have done so on other occasions. Mm. If no other allegations come forward, I would be minded to think that Daniel Korski will, will survive this one allegation. But as you say, we'll probably know in the next uh, two or three yeah. days. I mean, one of the things that struck me about just the story generally is that before this moment, I didn't really know who Daniel Korski was, and I suspect neither did anybody else. And yet there were a couple of other slightly more what you might call high-profile uh, propositions, uh, Paul Scully being one of them, uh, who weren't selected. And you wonder why that was. Well... <laughs> This is what really irritates me sometimes about the Conservative Party. You know, Paul Scully is a really talented guy. He was a minister in Rishi Sunak's government. And they put him through the whole process of, you know, long-listing for the Tory London mayoral candidacy and then didn't put him on the shortlist. Talk about humiliating one of your own MPs yeah. um, by the process. You know, in any sort of sensible operation, you know, someone would have said before he stood at all, uh, look, Paul, I think it's unlikely we'll shortlist you for these whatever reasons, whatever they might be. Don't stand because the last thing we want to do would be undermine you as your as a local MP. Yeah, exactly. But the Tory party couldn't even get the sort of basic personnel management like that right, which is just another manifestation of why the Tory party isn't in a good place. Yeah, slightly worrying. Speaking of uh, not them not being in a good place, what about the Labour Party? You, you were quite complimentary about a Keir Starmer interview uh, on Twitter yesterday uh, where he says that uh, he basically wants to try and get back to the old-fashioned value. It sounds old-fashioned, it shouldn't, um, where he says he wants working people to, to be able to get on in life to make sure that your children have more chances than you did, which used to be a sort of guaranteed a sort of situation in in this country. You know, my my parents came from very a very working class stock. They sort of became middle class. They then you know produced me. And you can call me whatever you want, but I'm certainly not working class. I don't think. You know, there is a sort of a social movement that has been going on in the past few generations, but it seems to have stopped. Yeah, 
Well, look, Mike, I, I don't know about your circumstances and I don't fully know about Keir's circumstances. What I can say is that you get all sorts of privileges when you were born, money or whatever. But I, I think the greatest privilege is to have in your corner throughout your life a mum and dad who believe in you. Mm. For me, there is no you know, greater love, no greater force for good in civilization than the love that parents will give to their children. And I think it's why we're so offended when we see you know, any kind of child abuse by parents. It's so against the, the natural order. Um, lots of families fail for all sorts of reasons. And by family, I mean the extended family as well. You know, mm. the, the role that aunts, uncles, grandparents play in the care of children. But when was the last time, Mike, you heard any politicians do any sort of substantial policy uh, for the family? We have the most anti-family tax system yeah. in Europe. We are too much of an individualistic culture. And I set, make that criticism of the Conservatives as well as I would have of Labour. And I just heard in Keir Starmer's interview yesterday, I didn't hear policy or whatever, but I heard a personal appreciation of how important the family had been to him. I just look for one day when a politician mm. will say, I'm going to help other families stay together. We're going to encourage marriage. I'm going to encourage um, grandparents and aunts and uncles to be involved in the childcare of their children, not just going to pay for people to put children mm. in paid for childcare and ignore the role that families play. That is just my wish. No, I think you're absolutely right. And the breakdown of the family has been the cause, the root cause of an awful lot of the problems in our society in terms yep. of the welfare system, in terms of the unemployment systems, the, the, the benefit systems, all of that, you know, is, is probably quite easily laid at the, at the at very much at the beginning anyway uh, of the breakdown of family let me finish up tim uh, with a, a word about cricket because a big day today a second ashes test starts yeah. um i was laughing with julie hartley brewer i'm not going to try and get into trouble about women's and men's cricket but you know the bbc are getting themselves in all sorts of trouble because they the, keep the award-winning julia hartley brewer. the award my apologies yes the award-winning <laughs> julia hartley brewer of course um and she's still clutching it, even as we speak, the award, which is great. Um, you know, they can't get their heads around calling it the ashes, um, either for men or for women. So nobody knows which ashes they're talking about anymore. But also, fundamentally, um, you were saying, again, uh, on social media, uh, what an unfortunate piece of timing uh, for this um, piece um, of, of sort of so-called research to come out, saying that cricket is inevitably and essentially racist. I don't know what it is about some of our institutions in the country. There's plenty wrong. We've been talking about some of the things that have been wrong in the last 20 minutes, mm. Mike. But actually, you know, English cricket in so many ways, like most sports, is very good at involving minorities. Mm. And yet, rather than sort of saying, you know, there's room for improvement, we can, you know, we can do a little bit better here or there, we manage to sort of smash ourselves up too often and say we're irredeemably racist. Mm. Look across Europe, look across French television, for example. You don't see many people who are, who are non-white. You know, again and again, at the top of politics in, in most of Europe, we, they don't have the diversity that, that we do. I just, there is something about our country. We want to knock ourselves all the time. The press are partly to blame, but when the report came out yesterday you you were probably uh, sunbathing or whatever you were doing on, on holiday but um, on the today program you know the people who put this report together there was no critical questioning of them they were saying is this really true their findings that british cricket was racist 
were just accepted mm. as true. And I think that's a libel on many good people who have given many years to the sport and don't deserve this race relations industry's constant attack on everything. Because the race relations industry will never suddenly say the job of attacking racism is over, even though I think racism is on decline in Britain. They are on the search for more and more racism and they will try and find it everywhere, mm. partly by redefining what racism is. Yes, it, exactly right. And, 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 and when they're told, well, we can't find any evidence of that, well, they say, well, there's your, there's your proof. You've just said there's no evidence. Therefore, yeah. uh, we must be right. It's a bizarre world. Tim, great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Enjoy the ashes, uh, whichever one it is that you're deciding to watch. Uh, Tim Montgomery, former number 10 advisor there, on a cost of living uh, and a great many other things that we talk about here at Talk TV. Uh, we've got lots to do this morning. We've got many people to talk to. We've got lots of you calling in as well. We want to hear from all of you because, of course, this is the award-winning Talk TV. TV. Congratulations to Julie Hartley Brewer, to Piers Morgan, and of course to James Whale as well, because, you know, we are all one here at Talk TV. We talk sense, you listen, and you tell us what you think. And that doesn't happen anywhere else. No way in this country. This is Talk TV. Good morning and welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Got loads of great messages coming through already. Many of you have got me- plenty to say uh, about the problems we're facing in this country, not least uh, the water problems. The water industry seems to be entirely collapsible, seems to not work at all. Uh, we're talking about strikes from doctors who earn in excess of £120,000 a year and apparently they want a 35% increase or else they're just not going to bother saving people's lives. Marvellous, isn't it? Fantastic. The nurses, meanwhile, have seen sense, proving once and for all that actually most nurses sensible and the militant activists got it wrong and instead of actually helping patients and helping the NHS they did it way more damage than anybody ever could who was trying to destroy it I mean you couldn't make it up could you? We're going to talk to Molly Kingsley shortly, co-founder of Us For Them. Matt Hancock was up in uh, the COVID inquiry yesterday. Uh, I watched some of it with interest at various points of the day. Let's have a look at him talking this morning, rather yesterday, um, about how sorry he is. I am profoundly sorry for the impact that had. I'm profoundly sorry for each death that has occurred. And I also understand why, for some, it will be hard to take that apology from me. I understand that. I get it. Um, But it is honest and heartfelt. And I'm not very good at talking about my... Uh, emotions and how I feel. Yeah, he's not very good at talking about his emotions or how he feels. Uh, You might remember him crying on television. You might remember him talking about his emotions and how he felt uh, when he was in the jungle. You might remember him talking about his emotions and how he felt when he was talking to Isabel Oakeshott. You might even remember when um, he talks about his emotions um, in Parliament and how he felt. I'm not sure I believe a word Matt Hancock says. Let's talk to Molly Kingsley. Molly, that's all right then, apparently. Matt, sorry. Morning. Good morning, Mike. Uh, No, I don't believe a word he says either. I think it is despicable. Um, You know, this is a man that had us all under house arrest on and off for the best part of two years whilst he was having an affair, not obeying his own rules. Like, is he profoundly sorry for that? Because I didn't hear that bit of the apology. No, I missed that bit as well. But this is the other thing that, uh, you know, the actual meat and drink, and I know you were tweeting about this yesterday, um, is that not only was his um, planning completely wrong, not only was his knowledge completely sort of missing, not only did he say that he was told something, therefore he believed it. You wonder what the calibre of people is at the top of our government 
um, to be able to be running something like this. He, he asked Helen Waitley, you know, how's it all going in the social care area? And she said, well, not very well. We've only got two plans and I've only seen one of them. And you're kind of going, well, you sort of basically locked down the economy based on nothing. Yeah, it's really disappointing. I mean, I think his attempt to throw his civil servants under the bus was, and I've already used the word despicable, so, mm. you know, abhorrent, let's say. It yeah. was very transparent and conspicuous. So it was a complete failure yesterday to, I mean, he said sorry, but actually he didn't offer any any meaningful apology for the handling of the pandemic and the decisions that you know we know because the evidence he seems to be forgetting that the evidence is in the public domain you know we have a million of his private whatsapps that we have all read and i just digested and mm. i think many of us will have felt profoundly shocked actually about the lack of due process the lack of basic morals the lack of consideration the lack of respect shown for the british public in those whatsapps right. so you know you he can say sorry, in, in the kind of very oblique way he said yesterday, but I didn't hear anything by way of an meaningful apology no. or recognition, actually. No, and I didn't see absolutely all of it, but I didn't see hard questioning coming his way particularly either, because I think I would have said to him, you know, in this WhatsApp message, when you said, should we be able to scare the pants off people for the next one that's coming along down the track? I didn't hear anyone asking me about that because I'd like to have heard his answer. Yeah, I mean, there's a huge question here about the lack of due process and the lack of ethics there is. It may be that the inquiry comes on to that in module two, let's be fair. Mm. However, I felt the same as you, Mike. I mean, I, I came away listening, I listened to most of yesterday and I was deeply troubled by the line of questioning as much as Hancock. You know, Hancock will be Hancock. I think we know mm. and expect that now. Um, but actually what I think was the most troubling element of yesterday and actually the inquiry so far is that Hugo Keith, the KC for the inquiry, appears to really have drunk the Hancock Kool-Aid mm. in a way that actually the issue here was not the fact we had lockdowns. It wasn't the fact that we stopped the ed education of 10 million children and that we deprived dying relatives visit with loved ones. The issue here was that we didn't do that sooner, quicker, right. harder. And actually, if you listen to the line of questioning, you know, the KC is critical on those grounds. And I think that just sets us up for a deeply troubling precedent mm. in terms of what this inquiry is going to say. Yeah. Well, let's have a look at another clip because he appears to have only drawn one conclusion so far uh, from his studying of what went wrong. We've got to be ready to hit a pandemic hard, that we've got to be able to take action, lockdown action if necessary, that is wider, earlier, more uh, stringent than feels comfortable at the time and the failure to plan for that was a much bigger flaw in the strategy than the fact that it was targeted at the wrong disease. So in his view we should have done it earlier we should have done it for longer perhaps and that's what we should do next time. I mean I don't know if he realizes this but he's making a declaration there that is fundamentally inconsistent with some pretty fundamental human rights you know it it, it I don't know how he has got comfortable that that is um, proportionate, reasonable, rational, you mm. know, all these things that until 2020 we thought executive action needed to be. Mm. Uh, that certainly isn't. There's obviously a huge question about how what is he what he's describing is consistent with childhood 
children's education, children's welfare. You know, I, I think you can have this conversation about stopping the virus, but on contact with reality, the idea that this is a non-harmful cause of action just evaporates. I mean, right. we've seen the carnage that it's reaped across childhood. In fact, we now have reports, as you know, we don't need reports to tell us. There's now a really damning report came out from UCL earlier this week saying exactly this, that lockdowns and school closures are a disaster for children, that children mm. were forgotten. So, you know, I would like to see how he can reconcile um, what he's proposing, yeah, with morality, with law, with childhood, with child welfare. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, the one thing that did ring kind of true to me was when he said that there was this sort of, almost almost sort of um, obsession with the, the the worst case scenario where there would be bodies in the street and they wouldn't have enough body bags and they wouldn't have enough places to bury dead bodies and I wonder whether that did distract them because if you look at something through that kind of lens everything else seems unimportant doesn't it if you actually do believe or convince everybody that there's going to be literally 10,000 people dropping dead in the street every day that's the only thing you care about so I wonder whether that was a deliberate kind of nudge by somebody to make them pay attention to, to, you know, that over there instead of what was actually going on? Well, when you look at the modelling, I mean, we know now that the Neil Ferguson modelling was grossly <laughs> inaccurate. Yeah. There is a very interesting question about the assumptions behind that modelling. Mm. So, you know, we know that they effectively only, SAGE were only asked to model worst case scenarios. Why? You know, who, who, at whose direction? Yeah. Well, the minister's direction and i think there's there's some very significant unanswered questions here i mean when you see hancock use terminology like let's frighten the pants off everyone it's hard to buy a narrative that he was somehow hoodwinked i mm. mean that looks like a deliberate strategy to yeah. stoke up fear i do agree though that having stoked up that fear they left themselves with a huge problem because they did frighten the pants off everybody and i think what they found is once they'd done that actually reining that level of fear back in was almost impossible. Mm -hmm. It really does seem an extraordinary state of affairs. That I, I just find myself ask, asking the question, how did these people get into government? Yeah, I mean, I think, and, and how do we get them out? <laughs> um, the you know I think absolutely the quality and there are a few exceptions you know there have been a few good men and women in this period but they have been very few and far between and actually this reeks and it you know there, this the Ar Hancock statement yesterday I mean it is such staggering arrogance and I yeah I mean you know you can probably say I'm quite shocked by it actually because yeah. I think when we first started talking about the inquiry I think you and I thought Mike that it was going to be a whitewash mm. I think it's actually worse than that. I think this is dangerous. You know, we are at risk of setting up a really, really dangerous precedent mm. here. And I, do, I just don't understand how it's, I mean, you know, I do come at it particularly from a point of view of a child lens, but actually for all of us, you know, how, how are we going to have a functioning economy if, if we have lockdowns every three years? Yeah. Well, exactly. And surely the lesson that should be learned from what happened during COVID, and Julie Hartley Brewer was talking about this this morning, sorry, the award-winning Julie Hartley Brewer, um, was that, you know, Actually, most people who got COVID didn't die, even people who were supposed to be vulnerable, you know, and I know that there are people who will be very upset when I say that, but it's true. Unfortunately, that is the truth. It's well, it's absolutely true. And 
you know, there were large swathes of the population that were never at any real risk, you Mm. know, kids, but actually also you might say, you know, young, fit, healthy people under 40 were never at serious risk. And and I think we've lost any kind of grasp of that. And, And the thing, you know, another thing that I found very concerning listening to the inquiry yesterday was that we seem to still be myopically focusing on the virus as a risk and you know to prevent that risk we must stop the virus in its tracks and that mm. was as much the kc as it was hancock and you think well actually if we really were concerned about preventing illness and death because that has to be the the ultimate goal here well there's much more we can do it's not just about the virus is it it's about increasing societal resilience mm. nhs resilience but also our own resilience and we all have a personal responsibility towards that so you know had we been a healthier fitter nation then this would have been a far less deadly virus even to the people you know the cohort that were mm. susceptible to serious illness but i heard none of that conversation yesterday and i don't think we're going to hear that conversation no. no well we shall wait with bated breath molly good to talk to you thanks very much indeed molly kingsley co-founder of us for them uh, on the disappointment uh, felt generally speaking around the country i suppose we shouldn't have expected anything better from matt hancock but it really was quite a self-serving uh, self-promotional appearance as ever as you would expect Uh, from good old Matt. I don't like to share my emotional feelings because I don't like to talk about them very much, apart from all the time. Uh, This is Talk TV. I'm Mike Graham. We're going to take some calls. Uh, We're going to hear your views on everything from water to migrants to all manner of different bits and pieces and the NHS as well. This is Talk TV. On DAB+, on the app, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Good morning and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Loads going on today. We've got lots to talk about. We've been talking already about the state of Thames water and the water business in general, which seems to be pretty much on the brink of collapse. We're being told that Thames water is in so much debt that basically they may not be able to get out of it. And it may require, wait for it, a rescue package from the government. Uh, That would be you and me once again paying for the ridiculousness and the inefficiencies of a uh, private business run badly by people who are uh, creaming off the top and a woman who has just resigned who actually made double the money that she made the previous year shortly before she resigned, despite the fact uh, that hose pipe bans have been in place all over the place and sewage has been pumped into the sea, sewage has been pumped into the rivers and whenever there is uh, any sign of no rain for a couple of minutes, they tell you you can't water your flowers. Absolutely extraordinary stuff. Andrew Allison's here with us, Chief Executive at the Freedom Association. In this hour, uh, he's going to be talking to us about a great many things, including the problem with the water business. Also, the problem with cricket. The Ashes gets underway, second test today at Lords. Uh, I'll be going uh, towards the end of the day tomorrow um, and we'll have to talk about the fact that English cricket is apparently racist, according to yet another report by yet another group of activists. Also, coming up in this hour, Alex Phillips joins us uh, over the ridiculousness of the government saying that it's going to cost hundreds of thousands of pounds per migrant to send them to Rwanda. I mean, call me old-fashioned, but you can actually get a flight to Rwanda for about 200 quid. Uh, so I don't know quite how they get from there to £169,000, but that's another story. Andrew Allison's here. Very good morning to you, Andrew. Good morning, Mike. Nice to see you. Um, cricket's a big thing for you. Let's start off with that. Um, yes, another report are following on from, I suppose, what happened in Yorkshire yeah. and how the Yorkshire Cricket Board is still dealing with all of that. Um, we've now got English cricket, or England and Wales cricket, I suppose, to be precise, being accused of being racist and sexist. Racist and sexist. Um, I mean, this report, I think, was written before any evidence was taken. You you only had to look at the people who were on the panel, mm. and they were all 
sort of left wing woke yes. um, race. They're looking activists. for that. They're they're looking, looking they're, for that they result, they're looking they? for it. Mm. And, and then you start looking into the report, and I've looked into the summary of the report, and I think they're just cherry picking isolated incidents yeah. and then try to, 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 to make it look that the whole of cricket is racist. Now, yeah. this is the game that I love. I think it's the best game in the world. Mm. Uh, and, you know, I've lost count of the amount of cricket matches I've attended. Big cricket matches, smaller cricket matches. You know, Lords, Trent Bridge. Well, it is the, the national Oval, sport in all so many ways. When when you think of the number of sort of little village teams there are, Indeed. and you can sort of find yourself in a in a godforsaken part of Britain mm. somewhere, and there's a cricket match going on, and you find yourself sitting down and watching it, and it's great. I have never come across racism mm. for decades. Yes, I've seen it in the past. And if anyone wants to read uh, Ian Botham's autobiography, yeah. I last read it about 15 years ago, he speaks about the racist chance. Yeah. He talks about banana skins being thrown onto the outfield mm. when a black player came in. Mm. He spoke at one time at Scarborough that a, a, an old guy who used to follow Somerset home and away had a pint of beer poured over his head because he stood up and applauded under the 100 by Viv Richards. Yeah. This went on, but this was the 70s and the 80s. Yeah. I just don't see it now. Now, there's always going to be isolated pockets of racism and sexism. It's going to be in mm. cricket, it's going to be in football it's going to be in rugby any sport but importantly all those isolated pockets are going to be around life in general yes. now we have moved well, that's on one of the enormously that people make isn't it that it's that sport is a reflection of whatever society is mm. at that particular moment in time and people would probably agree that this country now is a lot less of a uh, sexist place mm. and a racist place than it may have been in the 70s yeah it's, it's a completely different country mm. you know um so I, I just don't recognise the sport that I love yeah. in, in, the, in this report. Uh, and Simon Heffer wrote a great article in, in, in The yes, Telegraph I saw yesterday. That. Uh, and, and, and he really, having blew that report uh, apart, and if anyone can read that, they should read it. Yes, and it says this, uh, cricket has been dragged into the culture wars by an activist minority. But that's more and more what we're having to deal mm. with in this country, isn't it? We've got it with Just Stop Oil. We've now got it with the sort of the race business. We had a caller just before the news there uh, who was of Jamaican descent. He said his parents came here in the 50s. But even he said, look, you know, there are people clearly uh, with an agenda here in almost every aspect of our lives. They're trying to make out uh, that something is there, which it isn't. And they're trying to therefore then change the way everything's done. I watched uh, Sir Trevor Phillips on Piers Morgan's show yeah. last night, you know, and he was he, he was saying just how much this country has changed. And, and if people want to think, that, oh, we're such a racist, mm. nasty country, he said, speak to your parents, speak yeah. to your grandparents. Right to actually what this country was like right. um, from sort of post, post-war, post post-war. Well, also, if it's such a stuff. racist country, why are people from so many different races and different countries around the world clamouring to come here? Precisely because it live isn't. Here? Because they couldn't be doing so if they thought it was a terribly racist place, surely. It's because it isn't. Yeah. And, and, and we've made huge strides. And I think one of the least racist countries in the world, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't do more to stamp out mm. racism, but I actually think we've been doing rather well don't rest on our laurels, no, but I think we're doing rather well. I think this is a pretty fantastic country to live in, yeah. which is why so many people want to come here. Yeah, absolutely right. Um, I'm just going to break away from you, Andrew, for a second, because we're actually going to go live to Lords right now, uh, where Richard Tice of this very parish uh, is uh, watching Just Stop Oil, uh, I think trying to um, somehow interfere with play in some way. Richard, uh, very good morning to you. What's going on? Uh, Mike, a very good morning to you and extraordinary. Just at the beginning of the second over of play, two jerks from just off ran onto the middle of the pitch and started to throw their, uh, their orange paint. Mm. A wonderful sight. The England wicketkeeper, Bairstow, rushed over to one of them, picked him up before he knew what was happening <laughs> and literally carried the jerk off the pitch. A huge round of applause from the whole crowd uh, were utterly delighted by the right way to treat these fools. 
so I just thought I'd pass that news on to you. And so uh, their disruption only lasted about five minutes. The groundsmen were prepared for this, rushed on, brushed away the paint, and play, I'm delighted to confirm, has recommenced. Stuart Broad is bowling. Tremendous. Um, and very, very good news that, uh, that, that England cricket is able to do what the police are incapable of doing, uh, which is simply removing uh, these pests and wherever they appear. Absolutely right. The England cricket is not going to take any nonsense. They're, if there's any disruption, they just pick them up and carry them off the pitch. And I think, as you say, policemen and women up and down the country could learn a great lesson from this. Uh, this is the way to deal with them. Pick them up and take them off and carry them off to the cells. Brilliant. Absolutely fine. And lock them in with the police horses or something like that. Fantastic. Enjoy the rest of the day, Richard. Thank you for the update. We're looking at the picture as we speak there uh, of the paint being uh, thrown around, uh, this ridiculous sort of orange powder that these just support. And just as we were speaking there, Andrew, of just stop, it's all part of the same nonsense, isn't it? it these is. people who are apparently so unhappy with the way that things are that they must disrupt them. I noticed they didn't disrupt Glastonbury, uh, which is a very ironically, um, you know, fortress-like place where if you haven't got enough money to get in, they will stop you from getting in. But it's all right if you uh, want to come to this country. And they all support the, the fact that people can come to this country uh, without being stopped from coming in, without any uh, fear or favour, because they all support refugees. Refugees are welcome here, they were all singing, while they were inside this compound, uh, you know, pr pretty much um, you know, manned by armed security. <laughs> you you know, but apparently they're not welcome at Glastonbury, though, unless they and buy a ticket. Well, it reminded me, I think it was Gwyneth Paltrow, wasn't it? Yeah. Who wanted to join all these Extinction Rebellion mm. protesters in London. So she decided to fly probably first class from oh, the yeah. Sancho Leeds to London totally. to do it. Bunch of hypocrites. Yeah. I mean, well, Plank of the Week this week, I think, is going to feature some of these characters. Holly Willoughby amongst them, who took a helicopter to Glastonbury, uh, who's always talking about how she has, you know, you have to be kind to the planet and you have to be good to the planet and you have to be nice uh, about how you live your life. But she's off in a helicopter uh, down to a big 12 hour party in Glastonbury. Unbelievable. Speaking of saving the planet, I see that uh, our good friend, the Archbishop of Wokebury, has been at it again. Um, Justin Welby in the Church of England apparently going to sell off all their oil and gas shares uh, to, in their words, protect God's creation. <laughs> I'm, I'm, just, I'm just glad to see they're still calling it God's creation. I thought they might have changed their view of Christianity. You know? Well, that wouldn't have surprised me either. Uh, yeah. isn't, isn't this the Justin Welby who was once an oil executive? He was indeed for BP. Yeah, so, yeah. And he worked there for quite a number of years. And yeah. one would assume that he has some uh, pension accrued there. So yes. I, wonder, I wonder if he's decided in no, all, in all good, good conscience just to reject his pension. Well, perhaps he could give it away to uh, the people who are dying and suffering in uh, very, very dangerous parts of the world. Who can say? He'd probably, he'd probably give it away to, uh, to uh, just stop oil or extinction. It's true, though. But we see all of, I mean, all of the problems that, that are kind of ramping up at the moment. The water one is, is one. Mm -hmm. uh, we've also got the energy prices and the electricity and the gas problems that we've got. Much of, of, of the cost of all of this stuff and, and the anti-pollution is driven by net zero. And mm. we've seen in the past just, what, 36, 48 hours, that Rishi Sunak's going to put more net zero um, levies mm. on, on our uh, uh, energy costs. We're, we're, uh, they're, they're being urged to reduce another green levy which has been put on. And they don't seem to want to stop. And now, of course, people are warning them that, well, you might not hit your net zero target. Well, so what? Would be what I would say. Well, this is the, uh, the Rishi Sunak who's tried to say, come on, uh, folks, you know, we're all in this together. Of course we are. We'll all pull through. Yeah. I mean, this is the man, I mean, he was extremely rich himself. He mm. was a sit right, successful, well, it was successful in business. Yeah. Fine, that's fine. But he also had the advantage of uh, of, of marrying uh, the, the heiress yes. of, of a multi-billionaire. The richest woman in India, who was, I believe, richer than the Queen. Yes. The yes. Of the uh, former so, Queen. So, so, so their combined wealth is more than the King's. Yes. 
Um, I'm sorry, they they wouldn't have a clue. And you're, and, and you're talking about you know talking about uh, taking a helicopter, Holly Willoughby, mm. to to Glastonbury. Yeah. I mean, I mean, this is the Rishi Sunak who, during the leadership uh, uh, contests last year, said how his children were so concerned about climate change. What are you going to do about climate change, Daddy? Yeah. And this is the man who, you know who, who takes a helicopter from here to Kent. Right. Well, you know, why wouldn't you? See, I don't have a problem with people doing stuff like that. They just shouldn't be preaching to us not well, that's, to. That's, that's my problem. I couldn't give a damn whether yeah, he takes I don't care how rich he is. I don't care how many helicopters he takes unless he's charging it to the taxpayer. Of I believe he pays for it himself. Yeah, what well, I do, but what it's, I do, it's the hypocrisy yeah, of it. That's, exactly. that's what annoys me. What I do care about uh, is the constant and um, sort of just a, assumption, really, that we, the taxpayer, will just pay for everything. Mm. You know, we're going to pick this up later with Alex Phillips, but the ridiculousness of saying it's going to cost us £169,000 or something similar to re- for, to remove each each migrant to send them to Rwanda. Why? Why does it cost that? Yeah, exactly. You yeah. know, you can fly to Rwanda for 300 quid. So where's the breakdown of the figures? Yeah, there just simply isn't one. Mm. Absolutely isn't one. Mm. So um, let's talk a bit about the water system. What's it like where you are? You've got Yorkshire water where you are. We've got Yorkshire water where we are. Right. Um, does that work in any well, way, well, shape well, or well, form? Well, it, 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 it appears to. It, we, we certainly seem to get uh, perfectly decent water coming through the taps when when we require have it. you got a hose pipe ban um, in place not yet here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states united healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs coming off their parents plan or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Because most of South East England has. Well, we're rather fortunate because uh, of uh, huge reservoirs in uh, West Yorkshire, which and there's pipeline. I mean, mm. I, I don't know if I don't know if viewers and listeners remember, but a good twenty, thirty years ago, I mean, Yorkshire water was in a complete mess. Mm. It's improved a lot since then, um, and there's new and there's pipelines there. So we in East Yorkshire are relatively dry compared to the West, yes. where it rains a heck of a lot. Right. Um, and therefore, all this water can be piped through uh, to us. So we don't seem to have problems mm. with host pipe bands. But I think the water companies in general, and of course Thames Water in particular, yeah. I, I mean, the, as I see it, they, they haven't been interested in building new reservoirs. No. They haven't been interested in fixing leaks. No. They've been interested in almost asset stripping yeah. the, the, these companies, paying huge dividends. And bonuses. Uh, and, and they haven't invested in the business. Mm. 
And, and as you said earlier, Mike, guess who's going to pick up the tab? Mm. It's going to be us again. Well, again, it's going to be us. And that's the thing that I think makes a lot of people pig sick. Mm. Uh, breaking news now, just of all protests, does stop the second Ashes test. But Johnny Bairstow carried uh, one of the protesters off. We'll see if they're still... <laughs> Good for uh, Johnny. <laughs> I know, absolutely brilliant. But, of course, the tragic thing for cricket would be if he sort of injured himself somehow while he was doing that. Yes. Uh, and then that has a knock-on effect on the actual game. You know, these people are an absolute menace, aren't they? I wasn't shocked that it happened, though. No. I, I mean, I, was, I didn't know anything about it because mm. I was in the studio with you. But when, when you said you were going to your new cricket correspondent, yes. Richard, Richard Tice, yes. um, I wasn't shocked he's, he's to He's very good it. value for money, is Richard Tice. Because they did it at the snooker, didn't they? Yeah, they did it at um, the snooker. I, I, and I will, I, I'll, I'll, I'll bet anything that when Wimbledon starts, they'll do it at Wimbledon as well. Well, they'll probably try, because mm. they'll see that as another sort of posh event. But they're all posh. I mean, this Phoebe woman keeps popping up, the one with the pink hair. She's been arrested almost at every uh, sort of slow march that there's been. Unbelievable. But, Andrew, listen, good to see you. Um, we're going to be talking to you later on uh, as well, because later on this week, Plank of the Week comes out. Andrew's going to be a guest on the panel. Uh, there's so much to talk about, so many people to put on there. Uh, we can't wait to get going. Uh, coming up, though, we're going to take your calls. We're going to talk to Alex Phillips about the migrant problem as well. This is Talk TV. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here at Talk TV. As ever, uh, there's lots going on this morning. While we are on the air, uh, it looks as though Just Stop Oil have decided once again uh, to ruin everybody's day. Uh, they've tried to attack the ashes now at Lords, which is the second test, of course, uh, just got underway today. We heard already, uh, here's Johnny Bairstow carrying one of these bozos off the field. Well done, Johnny. Give him a medal. Give that man a medal. Uh, he's carrying him like he's a child. Absolutely brilliant. Uh, they should hurl him into a cage or something and make him sit there for the rest of the ashes. And I mean day, night, afternoon, morning, midnight. I don't care. Throw him a few uh, bits of raw chicken to eat. See how they like it. Um, unbelievable. You know, this is a major sporting event. Uh, these people need to be stopped. I was uh, tweeting out yesterday about this ludicrous woman, Phoebe, uh, who keeps popping up with her pink hair, claiming, I'm just sitting down with my friends. You know, this is the same woman who went to a £40,000 a year private school and has got nothing better to do uh, than to basically disrupt everybody's lives. It can't go on. Somebody's going to have to do something about it and somebody will probably do something uh, which doesn't in any way uh, become efficacious for the protesters. But let us now talk to Alex Phillips, uh, who is with us here, uh, former MEP, of course, with the Brexit Party, now uh, with Reform. Alex, a very good morning to you. Hi, good morning. Nice to see you. Notwithstanding that Just Stop Oil bursting in the door and stopping this interview taking place, let us talk about uh, the migrant problem. I've been away for a few days, staggered to see the numbers uh, game being produced by the Tory party, that apparently for uh, a £300 round trip to Rwanda, they're going to pay £169,000. I'm not quite sure how this works. Well, do you know what? When you look at how they say it works, it's home office processing, it's the money they've already given to Rwanda to help set up the accommodation. Mm. What they actually haven't factored into the calculation, and this is astonishing, is the legal costs so far. Legal costs, of course, borne by the taxpayer. Yes. In having these constant human rights cases with immigration lawyers for each and every single migrant who is supposed to be on that very first plane to take off. And what I find a little bit cynical, actually, is there is not a cat's chance in hell that the Conservative Party didn't realise there was going to be a huge amount of litigation when it comes to this plan. But what it does, of course, is it enables the Conservative Party to use taxpayers' money, a bit like a PR campaign. So they know that there's going to be all these legal battles. We're paying for them. And then at the same time, they can point to everybody else and say, oh, it's the lefty lawyers. Oh, it's, you know, it's the ECHR. Oh, it's this. Oh, it's that. Because they don't have a sensible plan and strategy. What they really should do is bite the bullet and actually 
actually start turning back boots. Well, sure. And, and also do what uh, a, a Tory MP has written, the MP for Devizes, I think, this morning in The Sun, just saying, look, if you arrive here illegally, you will not be allowed to stay. It's not that difficult. Let's just make that statement, make it work. If somebody arrives illegally, as everybody who is coming on a small boat does, then that's the end, surely. Well, of course, people coming over on small boats know full well they're not arriving legally, which is why so many throw their passports into the water. And when you look at the cohorts on those boats now, yes, there are always going to be genuine refugees and asylum seekers among a mix of people trying to get into a country illegally. But a vast quantity of those who abuse that system really don't fit either of those categories. They are people who are either coming here opportunistically to work in the black market or worse still, are involved in some form of criminality Mm. or terrorism. And when you look at how Australia dealt with this, yes, it created international uproar, but Australia actually started to just say, boats are coming to our country into our territorial waters from elsewhere and they are arriving illegally, we have the right to turn them back. Now, of course, this is going to upset a lot of people, but nothing would send out a clearer deterrent than seeing a boat intercepted and told to go back to France. Yeah. I think that, I mean, yeah, whatever people might say about, oh, well, legal this and optics that, actually, if you wanted to deter those crossings, that is what needs to happen. I mean, incredibly, I think it was just last week, uh, before I went away, there was a court case where a judge had sent a, uh, an illegal asylum seeker to prison. And as as he was being taken down, as it were, he actually said, oh, if I'd known I was going to get locked up, I wouldn't have come. So, I mean, they have got the means to do it and the mechanism to do it. They'll probably say they haven't got enough prisons to do it. But if they just simply started doing that, people might be dissuaded from making the journey. So exactly. This is this is what I don't understand. The government's argument for spending so much per capita when it comes to the Rwanda policy is, yes, very few migrants will end up on those planes if the planes ever take off. But, the, you know, the, the headlines it will make, the tweets and the social media mm. posts it will generate. If you've landed in the UK and now you're on the way to East Africa, it's supposed to stop people in their tracks and think twice about trying to make that journey. Wouldn't it be cheaper just to turn a boat around? I well, mean, yeah. it has the impact. Wouldn't that actually be cheaper? And also it sends a message to the French as well, who we have given a lot of money to. They're supposed to be intercepting what is a three-mile stretch of coastline to stop these boats from coming across. And they're clearly not up to up to scratch when it comes to doing that. I could, you know, bandy about potential accusations that there might be some degree of French collusion mm. in all of this. Um, But, you know, Britain is constantly so worried about appeasing every other country on the planet, appeasing our neighbours in Europe, appeasing whoever it may be in some multinational organisation, the head of this charity and that. But the whole time we're doing this, lives are being lost. Lives are actually being lost because human traffickers continue to exploit human cargo and it is a grotesque system and the conservatives keep saying well we need to stop it we need to stop it it's evil it's the traffickers who are at fault but the one thing that could actually make an impact they're too scared to do that's the trouble isn't it because the whole economic and migrant sort of asylum seeker system is built upon an old-fashioned model it's not built upon highly trained and highly mechanised gangs, uh, you know, highly weaponised gangs as well. I'm told that it's now more profitable to smuggle people than it is to smuggle drugs. And sometimes they're doing both. Yeah, absolutely. And these are huge international criminal circles as well. Lord knows what other ties they have to other illicit organisations, terrorist groups, extremists, so on and so forth. And it's been a failing of Western policy for years, in fact, which has led us to this point. And I could list multiple examples, but I won't bore you to to, to death with the Mm. details. 
Um, but yeah, it, it's hugely complex and it's a big international problem. And when we put the legislation in place that we have today, when it comes to people claiming asylum, we didn't have these huge migratory flows that we are now seeing. And actually, when you look at the people arriving in the UK, a vast percentage of those who are claiming asylum here have already tried to claim asylum in other EU countries mm. and been rejected. Um, and essentially, if we didn't have the deep blue sea, to the west of us, then they would probably continue on the route and continue trying to claim asylum. Of course, we have the added incentive that we are England and English language is our, our national language, which a lot of people, wherever you're from in the world, have some grasp of and feel that they can get by in a culture where they can speak a little bit of the native dialect. Um, but, you know, it, like you said, we do have a hugely outdated system and nobody actually is lifting up the bonnet on the car mm. and saying what's underneath all of this. They're constantly doing window dressing, uh, clickbait clips and, and, and sound bites and PR exercises and not really doing anything concrete that's going to really stop this problem. And the argument, of course, is out there that in some way the Conservative Party does thrive on this because even though they, they're not achieving their goals, even though they are catastrophically failing to realise stopping the boats, there is this sense, isn't there, that things would be much worse mm. if it was under the Labour Party. And at the same time, they get to distract the whole population with boats crossing the channel, while legal migration yeah. to this country is over half a million, which well, is totally it's worse than that, Alex. It's not just over half a million. That's net. The number of people who came in 2022 is 1.2 million. Now, we don't really know how many of those people will leave or how many of them will hang around. I mean, we've seen terrible cases of crimes being committed by all sorts of people in recent weeks, some of whom came here originally legally, some of whom originally came here illegally. And I know that we've got plenty of arguments for homegrown terror and homegrown, you know, criminals. And we've got lots of people who commit crimes. What we don't need is to import more of them from elsewhere, surely. Right. I mean, I'm always very cautious when it comes to typecasting certain crimes committed by certain individuals, as everyone should be, because it can become quite um, a complex and uh, two-dimensional, you know, putting a two-dimensional framework on something so complex is, is quite dangerous. But you, you, there is an argument there for saying that when people are coming from vastly different cultures, um, into your own. There has to be a process of assimilation and integration, which if people are coming through illegally in vast numbers is not going to take place. Mm. And as someone who has worked around the world, certainly things like gay rights, women's rights, uh, these are, you know, the way that the, the sort of rights and standards we have in our society, our cultural mores are certainly not a reflection of what they have back at home domestically. No, I think that's absolutely fair to say. Uh, good to talk to you, Alex. Thanks very much indeed. Alex Phillips there, uh, former MEP for the Brexit Party, now reform. Uh, of course, talking about the migrant problem. Why is it costing so much money? And when on earth is it going to stop? I'm talking about the illegal crossings, those that are made every single day by hundreds and hundreds of people. Let's talk live now, though, uh, to our cricket editor at Talk Sport, Mr John Norman. He is, as you might expect, at Lords for the second test in the Ashes series. Uh, it was the second over, I believe, as we were told by our man on the spot, Richard Tice. Uh, John's there uh, to talk us through Johnny Bairstow's remarkable removal uh, of the uh, Just Stop All protester. I'm going to give him 10 out of 10 for that and possibly a medal uh, in the upcoming honours list. John, uh, very good morning to you. Yeah, good morning to you. I don't think Johnny Bairstow is going to be your plank of the week this no, week, is he? he certainly uh, isn't. He's but... got previous, you know. Uh, you remember that uh, prankster 
Giovo, uh, who uh, makes his way out onto the field of play on occasion. Oh, yeah. uh, Johnny Bairstow uh, gave him short shrift when he made it, his way out to the Oval last year. This was even more dramatic. Uh, two just oil protesters, as was feared at the start of the season, actually. Two tests ago, the World Test Championship final was taking place at uh, the Oval. They actually prepared two different wickets. Right. Because, of course, if you get uh, orange talcum powder on the wicket here in a cricket match, it does have a huge impact on the game itself. So uh, only one wicket prepared at Lords, And the, the gasps from uh, uh, the stands as the, the two uh, just all protesters made their way yeah. out onto the ground. And essentially, the stewards were pretty quick to react. Mm. But it was the players that actually got involved. Uh, Johnny Bairstow picking one of them up. And as you can see on your we're screen... We're just watching that now, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, just uh, walking him off the field. Johnny Bairstow then had to go off the field himself because mm. he had orange paint all over his shirt. Right. I mean, I said to uh, Andrew Allison, who was here earlier, I mean, it's brilliant that he's done it. But I mean, the, the risk here, of course, is that if he was doing something like that and he injured himself... Uh, that then has an impact on his ability to play or his ability mm. to uh, to do things on uh, during the game. You know, I, but I, and I have great sympathy for the security staff, but some, something surely has got to be done uh, to make it more difficult for these characters to do what they've been doing. Well, look, uh, in the 80s, of course, we watched a lot of sport behind, uh, behind fences, yeah. didn't we? Certainly yeah. in football. Those days are behind us. I mean, I'm not sure what you do because at the end of the day, then... You get trapped behind them if something goes wrong behind you as yeah. well. So there, there's always going to be ways, isn't there, to get around the system. Um, I'm suppose. thinking something like a moat around the, around the, uh, the playing field. Which yeah, is, crocodiles. Which is, yeah, put some crocodiles in it if you like, or even just some snapping turtles. You can get them a bit cheaper. Um, but even just a, you know, a, a moat which is difficult to cross because at least it would slow them down. You'd be able to, you know, see them coming, as it were, because they've now done the rugby uh, game, haven't they? Uh, the rugby um, um, league game. And they've also done... Um, we, we have, we, they've, they've tried to do horse racing. They've tried to do the Grand National, various different versions of them. They're all really the same people. Um, it was suggested to me they might even try doing Wimbledon. Well, yeah, absolutely. But um, I, I don't know. I mean, they, they're going to get round it, aren't they? Whatever you do. Um, I suppose it's not giving them... The media coverage, maybe, maybe yeah, the cameras. Yeah, it's impossible. It's a that. bit like um, it's impossible you know when not a streaker. To, yeah? You know when a streaker runs on the pitch and yeah. the cameras pan away. Yeah, because they don't want to encourage them. Essentially, mm. maybe, uh, maybe that's maybe that's what's. Going I, to happen. I don't think that's going to work anymore because we now live in an age of uh, social media, and if you are going to be a streaker and you're going to want to put yourself out, on, you probably get more hits on Twitter than you would uh, by anybody watching it on TV anyway. So I don't think that's that's an option. And also, you know, we we can we can look away if we want, but you know, looking away isn't working. So you know, taking them off the pitch by force, I think, is definitely the way forward. Maybe you just need Johnny Bairstow at every sporting event <laughs> up and down the country and then you're going to be OK, aren't you? Yeah, absolutely right. So, I mean, I, are we expecting this to happen every single day then of the test at Lords? I mean, what are they going to say in the Lords security room right now? Because obviously any number of these people can get in. Um, they can conceal their orange powder, I presume, pretty, pretty easily. They might not look like typical cricket uh, fans, but, but who knows? I'm not sure there's much you can do. And yeah, I would be surprised if we get through the rest of the summer without this happening again. What we what we know is it's a very well uh, coordinated uh, campaign that's carried out months in advance. So it would be of a surprise to me that the two uh, people that were escorted from the ground are the only people here today with that kind of intention. Mm. Um, it would be a surprise to me 
if uh, we don't have this situation again. The only surprise is that they can afford the tickets to get in in the first place. Well, that's so, not surprising know. because they're bankrolled by Dale Vince, apart from anything else. You know, the ecotricity bloke has got more money than uh, Croesus. And also uh, by Aileen Getty, who happens to be uh, the, uh, the the recipient of billions of dollars of oil money, ironically, in America. Um, and they keep getting money. They keep giving money to them. So it's unbelievable. They've got plenty of money. Don't worry about that. I mean, in fact, I wouldn't be surprised to see them in the debentures section. Well, that may be so. I mean, Saudi oil does sponsor ICC events. So, you know, maybe they should be targeting the, uh, the ICC events rather than the, the test matches because I can't see any oil advertising around the perimeter fences no. here. They've gone for the wrong match. Yeah, well, as, as ever, they've, they've managed to get it massively wrong. Um, great to talk to you, John. So what do you make about the cricket once the cricket gets back on? Um, how's it looking so far? I know it's a bit early. Uh, familiar problems for England. They've just dropped Usman Khawaja. Uh, they did that in the first test match and he was player of the match. So uh, history repeating itself. Mm. Yes, well, we shall keep a very close eye on it. Uh, Richard Tice also there. Keep your eyes out for him. John Norman, TalkSports cricket editor. Uh, constant updates, of course, on the Ashes uh, as they go on. But absolutely ludicrous, is it not, that we're having to put up with these bozos every single time anything happens, apart from, of course, Glastonbury. They didn't disrupt that. In fact, they got all upset because uh, Ed Millipede was told he couldn't share um, a, a stage with any of the Just Up All people because it might give the wrong look to the Labour Party. Let's talk to George, who's in Middlesex. Hello, George. Oh, good morning, Mike. Looking forward to Friday as usual. Yes, absolutely. It will be a right old belter, I think, this week. <laughs> oh, I think you've got a big choice. You're spoiled for choice. We really are. Absolutely right. What do you want to tell me? Um, this Just Up All processes. I mean, I don't know if you agree with me. I'm speaking to other people. They should be charged with endangerment to life when they're blocking roads and yeah. things like this. You're blocking ambulances, mm. police cars, fire engines, and potentially you're killing people. Yeah. And they should be locked up. I agree. And also, it's the same people who keep doing it. And they seem, to, in my view, if you continue to commit the same crime over and over and over again, then you must surely at some point uh, have a jail term. Well, I've watched the police in France and Germany. They just pick them up, throw them in the back of the van, off they yeah, go. absolutely. Our police, do you want a cup of tea? How do you like a nice smoked salmon sandwich mm. or something? I know. I mean, it's, it's just a joke what's going on. It there's really is. Point, they, want to get, they want to get the England cricket team in charge. <laughs> the next time they, they, they come anywhere near London Bridge, they just chuck them in the river. <laughs> It'd be a good idea. What I suggest is five years minimum in prison. Yeah confiscation of all their money, property and goods. Yes. I guarantee you that would deter them. And I and go after their that. family money as well. If, the, if they haven't got their own house, you go and take the, the parents' house off them. Exactly. Another. Can I make another quick point? Go on. Uh, I was speaking to some parents the other day. They want CCT, sound and vision in all schools, colleges and classrooms uh-huh. and um, unis because yeah. they know what the teachers are telling their kids. The kids' faces can be blanked out. Yeah. But we, they have a right to know what they're saying to their kids. Yeah. They can watch it live or later on watch it as it's recorded. Yeah. But what's going on? I've had five friends had to pull their kids out the school. Yes. But stick things 
that they're saying to their children. I know. Extraordinary what's going on in the schools in this country. We'll be, we'll, we'll be doing lots on that, I'm sure, George, in the coming, uh, in the coming weeks. How about this from uh, Carolyn in Edinburgh? Uh, just watching Tim Montgomery on Mike Graham's show, what he said about families and having a supportive mum and dad was brilliant. I just wish that more people realised this. I have so much respect for this man, and I would like to thank him for saying this. Uh, and Carolyn, also very complimentary, says, uh, love your show, always talks common sense. Well, that's true. Um, and Tony says this, uh, Mike, how many... Um, where are, how many nurses and doctors could be trained, houses built and crime sold with the government source saying housing illegal migrants could rise to 30 million a day, 11 billion a year? Well, I know. It's bonkers, isn't it? Bernie's in East Sussex. Hello, Bernie. Hello, Mike. Hey. I know you've placed the government up this morning and things like that. Yeah, go just on. Said just said to your researchers just now, I've just watched Political Life for half an hour. Yeah. Right? And they've got that Muppet Bob Steely on there, right? Yeah. And every 10 seconds, right... He's looking at his phone. And as soon as he's looked at his phone, he's come back up and started shouting and shouting and all and things like, you know. Oh, well, like getting, he's getting, getting tips and, from and, what to and, say. And they've got a clue, and they got a clue some of these politicians, right, of to go on these shows that they're invited on to, unless they're paid for, mm. right, just to turn and switch their phones off. Yeah, I think and they should. And he got a brain. I mean, I don't think Seeley's one of the worst, to be honest, but I'm not going to defend him because you've, told, you've just told me what you've seen. I think the trouble with an awful lot of them is they don't understand ordinary people. They don't know what it's like to live an ordinary life. They get everything paid for, right? They get their train fare paid for. They get their house paid for. They get their electricity paid for. You know, every time they do anything, it's paid for. It's subsidised. They go into the bar. They're not paying six quid for a pint. You know, they're only paying three. They go in to get yeah. some lunch. They're only paying some ludicrous short amount of money because they don't face the cost of inflation in because it's all paid for by us. Of course it is. You know, we it's a joke. Know you know, it's just about time someone started waking up. Yeah. I know, it really yeah. is. Well, that's what we're here for. We're going to keep them awake and we're going to keep, every time they nod, nod off to sleep, we're going to give them a kick, uh, wake them up again. Bernie, good call. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, Gabby says, Mike, very illegal migration. We need to send all illegal arrivals to Rwanda. Once they see flights taking off, they will stop and stay in France. First flight to Rwanda needs to take place ASAP and the government needs to grow a backbone and start turning the boats back to France. We need an illegal immigration unit to remove all the, this, these people and staff it with people who are going to get the job. This is the point, right? And I said this at the very beginning. Uh, Richard Tyson and I had several rows about it. Look, if the Rwanda policy actually was put into effect and was put into place and people were actively removed, physically removed from here as soon as they arrive, it would work. I promise you that. That's what they need to do. It's that simple. Just do what it says on the tin. Do what you said you would do. And maybe, just maybe, it'll work. How about that? This is Talk TV. On DAB+, on the app, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Good afternoon and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Final hour of the show coming up. We've got Prime Minister's questions underway in the House of Commons. Rishi Sunak uh, talking about inflation, talking about cost of living crises, of course, getting questioned by Sir Keir Starmer, uh, the leader of the opposition, the leader of the Labour Party, uh, who apparently uh, wants to remain the leader of the Labour Party, but also uh, wants to be the next Prime Minister. Uh, he wants more housing. Uh, he says he wants more family involvement as well. He wants to make it possible for people uh, who are in one generation uh, to pass on better chances 
to the next generation. That shouldn't need to be a thing. That should happen as a matter of course, but maybe it hasn't been happening enough in this country. Annabelle Denham joins us, Deputy Common Editor of The Telegraph, uh, very shortly. Let me just give you some more breaking news. A passenger uh, is believed to have stabbed himself to death in front of horrified commuters at a central London tube station this morning. A huge police presence is on the scene with the British Transport Police confirming reports of a man sustaining serious self-inflicted injuries. Uh, he was, I'm afraid, pronounced dead at the scene. So a pretty horrific scene for commuters uh, at one central London per tube station this morning. Uh, we'll bring you more details on that as we get them, of course. The other uh, breaking news story that we've been following this morning uh, is that one involving Thames Water. Uh, they've said they're basically working constructively with shareholders to secure new funding needed to support a turnaround amid reports the government is drawing up contingency plans uh, for the company's emergency nationalisation. We've been talking to a lot of guests this morning about the problem with Thames Water. Annabel Denham uh, knows a thing or two about the way that you know these things are constructed and why they don't work terribly well. Annabel, very good afternoon to you. Um, what is the problem with the water business in general? It seems as though the government's been giving them a lot of money to repair leaks, to, to fix up Victorian sort of infrastructure, and yet they haven't done it. Well, I think a big problem is that the government simply hasn't given them enough money. It's going to cost around £50 billion by some estimates to modernise our water system. As you say, Mike, much of this dates from the Victorian times, and yeah. it hasn't been given the attention that it deserves over the years, which has led to all sorts of issues with water leakage. Uh, of course, you have problems with sewage leakage. The whole system is a complete mess. When it was privatised in the late 1980s, that was botched a bit. Um, and of course, since then, we haven't built any reservoirs. So what we have is a country that's got a decent amount of rainfall, and yet we behave like a country that has regular mm. droughts, mm. the host plans, for instance. And that's simply a consequence of our inability to build the correct infrastructure. So, you know, it's all very well piling blame onto the water companies themselves. But actually, I think that this is a failure of government policy. It's a failure of regulators. When we talk about water leakage, very rarely do we point out that it's the regulator off what who is actually setting the levels mm. for that. By and large, companies are complying with that because they face hefty fines if they fail to do so. So I think ultimately the British public at some point is going to have a decision to make, which is, are we content with the current levels of leakage? Are we content with persistent hosepipe bans? Or will we be willing to spend many tens of billions of pounds modernising our very outdated uh, water system? Yeah, but I mean, I think a lot of people would argue with you to say that actually the water company should be more responsible because in the end, it's their money uh, that they're spending that we've given them. Now, they're spending it perhaps not in the right way. And, you know, they might say like the NHS, oh, but it's not enough money. But, you know, they've been making plenty of money. Their shareholders have been making plenty of money. Others will say, well, that's fine because that all feeds into the economic system and you need to have big companies making money in order for your pension fund to work and all of that. But in the end, you know, the people running these companies are paying themselves massive salaries, bonuses as well. And yet nothing seems to change. I mean, I remember back going back to 2010, 2011, Thames Water was talking about rejuvenating all of the pipes underneath London in time for the 2012 Olympics. And I remember driving past many, you know, dug up streets when, where Thames Water signs were saying, you know, we're improving London's water system. Well, what happened? You know, it's now 12 years later. Sure, there have certainly been a lot of empty promises. I think it's a failure on the water companies. Yes, it's a failure, like I say, of the regulators to be setting the right levels for those companies. Um, 
in terms of the argument that we need to nationalise it in order that we might get more accountability, I think that we should um, you know, silence that as quickly as possible. I think we would get less transparency were we to nationalise it. Um, there would be less demand to know where the money is going. You're right that more and more money is being seemingly being poured into water. We've been warned that water bills are going to be going up as perhaps as much as 40% and people are feeling like they're not seeing the results of that. But I think it's just an underestimation of the gargantuan task uh, that would be involved in trying to stop um, these leaks and trying to bring a centuries old water system and sewage system into the into the modern era. Um, and like I said, I think ultimately people are just going to have a decision to make over whether they're comfortable with the current problem or whether they're willing to put more money into yeah. these companies. I mean, I had some interesting messages this morning from people who live in other parts of Europe or have places there. Um, the Spanish model sounds like a good one where, for example, um, it's not a nationalised industry, but it's much better regulated and they will give out a franchise, for example, to a water company for five to ten years. And if it does well, they'll renew it. If it doesn't, they'll take it away. Um, but basically, they're working with very, very much stricter rules. And one of the problems for me with Ofwat and with some of the other regulators in, in, in our sort of utilities businesses is that they're being driven very much by this whole net zero madness. And they're talking about making things, you know, uh, much more uh, reusable and, and much more redeemable and all of the things that the targets that they set, which means that they can't build reservoirs because they're apparently not good for the environment. You know, it's all this kind of mad you know, extra carbon taxes being put on things and people being told they'll have to pay more in order to make it, um, you know, much more sort of renewable. Well, that's not what people want. People want to be able to afford it, surely. I think that's right. Net zero is at the root of a lot of the problems we have. At the moment, you touched on an important point, Mike, there, which is that it doesn't feel like it's very democratic. No part, in fact, of the net zero agenda feels especially democratic. Let's not forget that all of the main parties supported it at the last general election. There was no real opportunity for voters to protest against it when they went to uh, the polls. And we there were warnings that it was going to cost a huge amount of money when it comes to water. Why is it that the UK, I think, only has one desalination? plant right. that could potentially be a solution to the problem but because there's this insistence that uh water provision be green there's a reluctance to to, to build another one so that's another sort yeah. of part of the well I, absolutely but, i mean we live on an island i mean i suggested desalination plants you know uh, on a show I was on a couple of years ago, or last year, and was roundly, you know, mocked for it. You know, people were like, you can't do that. Well, they can do it in places like Israel. They can do it in many hot countries. They can do it in parts of the Middle East. We could do it if we wanted to, and it's not a question of cost. But we are inevitably a relatively wet country. We had the wettest march for 40 years. Two weeks later, the Dorset uh, Water Company basically put on a hosepipe ban. Well, I think, like I said, a big problem there is a lack of reservoirs and it's very difficult to uh, build them. Britain has proven itself to be very bad at constructing any kind of uh, infrastructure. Look at just HS2 and the fact that mm. the costs keep going up and we haven't seemed to really have gotten anywhere with it. We're not building reservoirs. We're not building uh, desalination plants. There's a complete reticence to do so. A big problem of that is nimbyism, mm. local communities protesting against reservoirs being constructed in their areas. But it's been three decades since we last built one it's no wonder that we find ourselves in a in a position where we have pretty high levels of rainfall at least in some parts of the country and yet we have hosepipe bans in you know up and down the regions i mean i think in my area there's been a hosepipe ban in place since the end of last year that isn't going to be lifted until this december right 
And it's this kind of ludicrous nanny state business where we're being told that if you live in Sussex or Kent and if you are spotted doing something you're not supposed to be doing with your own water, which you've already paid for, uh, apparently you're going to get a £1,000 fine. I mean, it's, it's laughable. Well, I think that net zero, in some people's minds at least, has always been an opportunity to control other people's behaviour. I think it incentivizes the kind of curtain twitching that we saw far too much of uh, during the coronavirus pandemic. Um, uh, You know, net zero, at at least uh, my understanding of it, is very much about uh, reducing what people are able to do. It's about reducing travel, be that within the UK, getting into your car or flying overseas. Look at the push for things like 15-minute cities. Now, that may be all very well if you're able-bodied, but I'm not sure how elderly people or the disabled are supposed to cope if they're not allowed to get around in their cars. You know, there's so many restrictions coming in on what we can and we cannot do uh, under the guise of net zero or environmentalism. Look at things like the ban on plastic straws, yeah. on you know lids on coffee cups, like all of these small little things that in and of themselves don't make a big difference, but actually cause quite significant uh, inconvenience to people. And the war on plastic, you know, again, this is sort of the seen and the unseen. Sure, we don't want to see plastic filling up our rivers or filling up our seas, but actually um, it plays a really important role in uh, food preservation, making sure that food doesn't go off. And we know that a huge amount of energy goes uh, into food production. So it's just a lot of it is kind of virtually signaling. I think Mm. a lot of it is about control. Uh, People were not warned of the costs associated with it. Look at things like uh, heat pumps or electric vehicles, which are simply unaffordable for most people, not to mention the fact that the government doesn't seem to have brought in any of the infrastructure uh, necessary to make it possible. Um, It's really all about grandstanding politicians Mm. who are setting targets that will maybe in the future or may not but they probably won't be in power either way so it makes no difference also, these kind of quangocrats and so-called experts who give us information on what is likely to be the way forward. For example, today, just reading a story about how it turns out hybrid cars are actually nowhere near as green as they were originally supp- supposed to be. And in fact, they produce many more greenhouse gases than was originally claimed by manufacturers and people who actually told you you should buy one because it's better for the environment. In the same way that we were told to buy diesel cars, is over better for the environment. In the same way that we were told um, you know, that, that sort of net zero is the answer um, and that electric cars are the way forward. We're now seeing more and more studies which suggest they're not the way forward. They're not actually very green at all. In fact, in many ways, they're actually less green than driving a decent modern petrol car, which is pretty clean. Well, this is a product of having that arbitrary target that we're not allowing the market discovery process to get underway, but are rather throwing our weight behind technologies that we don't know are going to be the solution to this problem. And another issue is that British obsession at the moment, or at least among the political elite, that we need to be a world leader in tackling climate change. That, you know, it's it's good to aspire to decarbonise, but let's be honest and accept that we are responsible for around 1% of global emissions. This is simply not something that we can do on our own. And any effort to do so risks impoverishing British people uh, to the benefit of others overseas. So I would like to see us removing, remove the target, absolutely Mm. commit a low carbon transition, uh, but not be forcing these things on uh, on people. And another issue, you mentioned hybrid cars with electric vehicles, and we've read quite a bit about this in the news recently, is that they're so much heavier Mm. than uh, regular cars. 
batteries are extremely weighty and that means that we've got potential problems with bridges buckling we're going to have to reinforce bridges uh their tires are releasing uh, emissions that you know it's not something that people have been um considering uh roads are now going to have more potholes that could potentially lead to more uh, even more road accidents occurring every year uh, particularly on b roads mm-hmm. so all of these unintended consequences that haven't been considered none of it appears to have been fully thought through this is going to be an extremely costly process, albeit a worthy one. And politicians, I simply don't think, are being, they're not being uh, honest with the public. No, I think we've got a pretty good case for negligence by most of these politicians over the course of the last several governments. And I go all the way back to the beginning of the year 2000. And we'll stay with us for a moment. We're going to come back to you. We've got some other things that we want to talk to you about, including uh, this carbon tax, including uh, out-of-control inflation and who's being blamed and what the Bank of England is saying. Uh, more from Annabelle Dedham coming next. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Talk TV. Uh, we're going to be going live to Prime Minister's questions very shortly, but uh, before we do that, back to Annabelle Denham. But if you love Talk Radio, why not join the debate today? To link your Alexa and Talk Radio accounts, just say, Alexa, ask News Broadcasting to log me in. and We'll send you a link to your Alexa app. You only need to do it once, and you'll be able to continue listening to all of your favourite presenters, including myself, Mike Graham, it says here, and Vanessa Feltz, uh, and of course Julie Hartley Brewer, the award-winning Julie Hartley Brewer, and Piers Morgan, and Jeremy Carl, and Ian Collins, and everybody else who's on this show, uh, which is fastly growing uh, in popularity up and down the land. Um, Annabelle Denham is here with a deputy comment editor at the Telegraph. And Annabelle, just before we restart, let's have a quick look at Matt Hancock yesterday, uh, who was up before the COVID inquiry, saying a great many things, many of them rather surprising. I take full responsibility for the fact that in the face of Brexit and the threats that a disorganised Brexit could do, um, we took um, the resources were moved across the department uh, to focus on that threat, including away from pandemic preparedness planning. This now, I don't know about you, Annabelle. I don't know what he's talking about. and I don't know what he means. And I listen to that sort of word salad, as some people would describe it, and go, well, what planning did you have in place for a Brexit that might go wrong, which you moved to a pandemic, which did go wrong? Um, and then what have you got to say for yourself? They don't seem to be asking the right questions here. I think that's a real problem with the COVID inquiries that is just becoming sort of a group therapy exercise for those who may have very sadly lost family members yeah. to the coronavirus, but also an opportunity for left-wing shibboleths to be peddled, uh, but surprisingly by some supposedly right-wing uh, politicians. Yes, I think Matt Hancock's overall point was that Britain needs to prepare for wider, earlier and more stringent lockdowns. He very much still subscribes to the lockdown dogma that we failed to implement lockdown soon enough that we failed to implement those really stringent controls on people's uh, liberties sharply and quickly enough um and i find that you know absolutely extraordinary he was he's, he's also repeated the concerns that we were planning for uh, an influenza pandemic but had we known that a coronavirus pandemic was around the corner then of course uh, lockdown would have been on the table it surprised him to discover um that it 
it wasn't. And I think that we're forgetting that lockdown is first uh, a very blunt um, policy tool mm. that, uh, you know, as it turns out, may not have been necessary. Second, it was a policy tool that came with all sorts of consequences in terms of the economic and the social costs that simply were not considered. But third, there's a reason why it wasn't contemplated by governments before 20, 2020. And that was because nobody believed that a government would impose this mm. on its people. It was not until Beijing imposed the lockdown in China and then Italy did it after that massive surge in cases and deaths in Lombardy that it, it struck our scientific advisors, that it struck our politicians that this might be something that they could implement in order to tackle the coronavirus. And like well, like I said at the start, you know, my concern is just that we're not going to be asking the right questions here. We're not going to be asking why it was that lockdowns went on for so long. The initial idea was that we would squash the sombrero for three weeks while that first lockdown went on for months. Yeah. What was the purpose of the second lockdown? Um, and had the vaccine not come along, how long would we have had these rolling lockdowns uh, for, you know, where we were trapped in our homes for a period of time? Perhaps we had tier systems up and down the country. You know, all of these sorts mm. of questions. I don't think that we're going to have answered in the inquiry. And what that means uh, is, you know, perhaps Matt Hancock would be in favour of this, but is that lockdowns are going to be much more likely in future. We just simply won't have the same level of hesitation as we did in 2020. No, and they're clinging on to this narrative that the lockdown actually was a good thing when there's so much evidence that it wasn't a good thing and that it really didn't prevent the deaths that would have happened probably anyway. Um, whether it had happened earlier or whether the lockdown was stronger or for longer, it wouldn't have made any difference because by and large, the people who did die um, would have died whether there was a lockdown or not, probably. I think that's probably right. I think we also should bear in mind Matt Hancock is obviously saying this amid mounting evidence that lockdown, lockdown caused more harm than the disease. Mm. Look in recent weeks at the number, the increase in the number of child mental health referrals. Look at the massive increase in eating disorders, particularly among young girls. Uh, concerns have been raised that there's a cancer bomb that is ticking. These are people who simply mm. could not get access to treatment, still can't get access to uh, treatment, whose cancer diagnoses are going to be getting worse and worse as time goes on. And none of these things seems to be considered. Matt Hancock and, uh, you know, the, the medical elite's assumptions seem to be that all lockdown was designed to do was to try and prevent as many COVID deaths as possible. Mm. It didn't matter what the other health or social or economic consequences of it might be. And we're now discovering that they're absolutely enormous. I mean, look at the backlog uh, on the NHS. Mm. Over, well, over 7 million people who are currently waiting to get treatment. These people who, if they are not seen soon, could potentially die of illnesses mm. that should have been treatable. These are really serious issues. And of course, wrapped into all of that, you've got our stubbornness uh, about uh, NHS reform, the fact that you know, that is just impossible at the moment, even though our healthcare services really been shown to be completely lacking. Why is it that we're not looking at healthcare services on the continent where you have uh, social insurance systems that are providing better uh, 
outcomes much better, performance better, survival rates. Whereas, you know, when, when it comes to Britain, I think we top the table when it comes to treatable mortality. You know, this is really shocking stuff. And the question, I think, is, you know, how much longer are the public going to stand for it? Are we going to turn against the NHS? And will that finally allow some root and branch reforms to be implemented? Well, that's a very good question, a very good point. We've been tra- talking about that today as well. Annabel, thank you very much indeed. Annabel Denham, Deputy Comment Editor at The Telegraph. Uh, I'm uh, indebted to Sarah in West Sussex. She says, hi, Mike. Junior doctors are contracted for 37 and a half hours a week and receive unsocial hours premiums, which can add around 40% to their basic pay, which is pensionable. Overtime is also paid. Consultants do not work hours they are contracted to deliver programme activities, which are four hours each. An FT consultant will typically complete a minimum of seven PAs and three for supporting professional activities. If additional PAs are worked, it appears there is time off in lieu, not remuneration, and both receive on-call payments. Very helpful indeed, Sarah. Thank you. Andrew's in Manchester. Hello, Andrew. Hi, good morning. Hey, good afternoon yeah. to you. Good afternoon. afternoon. Yeah, what can I do for you? Yeah, well, I've just got a couple of points to make, in fact. Yeah. Um, the, the first one being uh, uh, regarding uh, doctors going out on strike. Hmm. I'm a natural supporter of the NHS. I always have been because I'm a big Labour supporter. Yeah. But the thing is, is that I don't understand because I'm actually a carer now. I left work a couple of months ago as I was to care for my partner. Right. Now, the thing is, is, the thing is, is, that, is that I get £70 a week. And to sound cynical, I cannot live on £100,000 a year. Right. But secondly, but secondly it, it, just, it just seems an absolute chaotic world we're living in at the moment. Right. An absolute chaotic country we're living in at the moment. I just don't understand why why we have to have all these strikes, and even as a natural labour supporter, I don't understand why we have to have all these strikes. Yeah. Um, simply because at the end of the day, as you quite rightly said earlier on, uh, there are people that are going to suffer for this. Yes. And, un- and under no circumstances can that therefore justify a strike, can it? No, I don't believe it can. I don't believe it can. But at the same time, at the same time, um, those junior doctors and nurses deserve a living wage. Mm. But I get £70 a week. I don't get any other help. Um, I'm working 24 hours a day, yeah. um, seven days a week, and I don't get any more than that. And so, if you don't and work then, and if you don't do the caring, there's nobody else to do it, is there? And that, that's correct. Mm. And, and the, point, the point being also is that... It's, it's, is that you know we don't get paid for this right. apart from apart from the pittance. Mm. No, we don't get a pension as such. Um, and, and, and and this actually, actually was quite annoying. Bit. But another thing, you had a chap on earlier on. Um, a, a chap, I think it was David from Tyneside. Yeah. Like he was uh, like he was talking about an MP, uh, like with three houses. Which I'm not going to decry anybody for having three houses. But the thing is, all benefits are means tested. Yeah. So why don't we means test MPs? Well, because true. we've got a billionaire. Oh, 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 no, 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 I do apologise. I actually married the billionaire's daughter, didn't I? Mm. Uh, a prime minister. So if you earn from your second jobs and your millions or whatever you, you, you've got, should there not be a, a threshold that says, right, well, look, if you earn this amount, just do it voluntary? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, some politicians have, have offered to do that. Very rarely do you hear about it, but but certainly it's true. Andrew, thank you. I appreciate your call. Uh, Michael Bloomberg, uh, who ran as mayor of New York and then became mayor of New York, famously did his job for a dollar because he was a multimillionaire and he said he didn't need the money. I don't, have, I don't think I've heard of any MPs doing that. But listen, uh, it's a good idea and I like it. And Andrew's quite right. You know, it's all very well saying, let's give a living wage to nurses. They already get one. 
How about doctors? Oh, 120,000? I don't think anyone in their right mind is going to say that's not a living wage. If you can't live on 120,000, matey, plus everything else that you're getting, uh, you're doing something wrong with your life. Coming up, uh, we're going to look at the world of woke and see what's going on. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. So if you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.